Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. Um, our sermon this week will be from Luke 3, 1 through 17, um, and Paul Ramsey, uh, one of our pastors, will be preaching. But before we uh, read the scripture, please pray with me. Um, Father, just reveal yourself to us this morning through your word and your text today, God. Just um, as we're in a season of Advent, um, just give us longing hearts um, for your return. Uh, we love you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Cyphus, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Thanks be to God. Oh, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. It's an honor to be preaching God's word. Funny story. When Britt started reading, he said, we're in Luke chapter three. And my outline says, John chapter three. But no worries, that was my mistake. I actually did study Luke chapter three, verses one through 17. So, so, uh, so that'll be the sermon. Uh, this is the second Sunday in Advent. Advent is a word that means coming. And Advent is a season in the church calendar where we wait and prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. God made man. 
Advent is a season of waiting. The, the, the church calendar actually starts with the season of Advent. And so I suppose Happy New Year is in order. Like how the turn of the new year gives us an opportunity to reflect on the last year and refocus on what's important in the year to come, Advent likewise presents us with an invitation to stop, to prepare him room, to look around and consider where and how we need God to move, and also to look inward, to consider with gratitude where the Lord has brought us, and also to consider and notice those places in our own hearts and lives where we need God's continued work and where we need to make space for God to shine light into the darkness. And really we need Advent as much this year as we have any year. Advent is about light coming into the darkness. If we were to look at the many ways in which the Bible touches on themes of light and darkness, we would see that the concept of darkness can refer to any number of things. It can refer to a broken world in general. It can refer to sin, to injustice. It can also refer to fatigue, to despair, which are not necessarily sin. Darkness isn't just about sins. It's also really, it's about sin and its effects. Darkness is a reference to the whole fallen world that is groaning for renewal through the work of Jesus. I love our passage for today. The word of the Lord comes to John the Baptist, which is the light of God breaking into the darkness of the world. And we're told by Luke, the role that John the Baptist is playing. In verse four, Luke quotes the prophet Isaiah to show that John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. With the work of the Lord described using images from the wilderness, valleys are gonna be filled, mountains and hills are gonna be made low, crooked ways are gonna become straight, rough places are gonna be smoothed over. These are metaphors for the ways that God is going to bring judgment, renewal and restoration. The, the, the valley being an image of God bringing relief in the face of suffering and despair. Picture a father reaching to his downcast child and lifting up her face. Psalm 25. I lift up, oh Lord, I look to you. The mountains and hills are an image of pride. We're told that they shall be made low. The proud are going to be humbled. The crooked becoming straight is an image of sin, of wickedness, of perversity being dealt with. And the rough places becoming level is an image for us of the rough edges of our lives and personalities that may not be sin, but that do need to be addressed so that we can grow in wisdom and in love. And so Advent, is in many ways an invitation to consider those images and find ourselves in them. Not so that we can fix them, but so that we can notice them and ask for God to heal and renew us so that we can have a clearer picture of the darkness that we're asking God to shine light into. And I don't know about you, but when I think about where I am right now, Advent is a really timely season for me. When I think about my own heart personally, when I think about the life of our family, Uh, myself as a father, as a husband, in my job as a pastor, the difficult season it's been for our church and for the big C church in our culture, in the news when we read about another contagious variant of COVID or more news coming out about the January 6th Capitol riot or another school shooting this past week and reading through news stories of children who've lost their lives and asking God not to let me become desensitized to school shootings. Life just feels really complicated and weighty right now. And 
talking to many of you, I've come to realize that I'm not alone in feeling this way. It's a strange time to be alive. There's so much to think about, to worry about, to argue about, to be angry about. And it seems as though it's nonstop. There's this feeling of, of, of collective numbness that we're experiencing right now, a temptation to withdraw, to turn off the influx of information that even the most optimistic among us are experiencing right now. Advent is an opportunity to lift our heads while the things that we are experiencing right now are in some ways new. The reality of life in a fallen world isn't. We are in darkness and we are waiting for the Lord to bring light, to shine light into our darkness. And so this week's theme is all about preparation. You know how uh, famous stand-up comedians have a warm-up act in order to get the juices flowing, get people laughing so that as soon as they come out, their first joke, everyone bursts into laughter or picture a warm-up or like an opener for a famous band, getting people in the, in the, in the mood to dance, starting with the first song. That's because the main event is actually better when you've prepared for it and been brought into the right, right mindset for it. And in many ways, that's what Advent is. In preparation for Christmas, celebration of the birth of Jesus on Christmas is going to be more meaningful for us if we are in the right mindset to receive the arrival of God born into the world. And this is in many ways modeled after how John the Baptist in our passage comes to prepare the way for Jesus. So here's our plan for the rest of our time today. We're going to look at three things. We're gonna look at where renewal begins. We're gonna look at how renewal starts. And then we're going to look briefly at the one who renews. So as we begin leading up to our passage for today, the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, because we're jumping in kind of in the middle of the story, the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke focus on the arrival of two people into the world, John and Jesus. The birth of John the Baptist is foretold, and then the birth of Jesus is foretold. And then John the Baptist is born to Elizabeth, and then Jesus is born to Mary. And then there's this period of time in which both John and Jesus grow up. There's not a lot of detail about those things, but we are told that John, uh, in the last verse of chapter one, John goes out to the wilderness where he grew and became strong in spirit in the wilderness. And we're told about Jesus, and we're shown how he is raised in and around the ministry of the temple. And then we come in chapter three, verse one, to our passage today, to the beginning of the public ministry of John the Baptist. Let me read, starting in verse one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, that's not in Texas, it's Abilene across the pond. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So to begin with, Luke, as he writes his gospel, locates us at the beginning of John's ministry. With, he locates us in history with real names, real places, to show that he's discussing historical events and dealing with historical figures. And the key verse that I want us to zoom in on for a few minutes is right there in the second part of verse two. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This is how, according to Luke, the good news of the gospel of Jesus began to be heard in the world. 
and how and where this news arrives, according to Luke, is significant. To look at the how for just a moment, it's clear that Luke is portraying John the Baptist as a prophet sent by God to his people. Luke tells us back in chapter one that John was filled with the spirit from the time that he was in his mother's womb. And when Luke introduces John to us here, the way he's introduced is of course a very common way that the Old Testament prophets were introduced. To give just a couple of examples, Isaiah is introduced this way at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in the land of Judah. Jeremiah was introduced this way. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. And then just one more, Ezekiel. On the fifth day of the month, in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans. And so with those examples, listen again to how John introduced, excuse me, how Luke introduces John. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, skipping down to verse two, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. It's clear that Luke is deliberately presenting John as a prophet in line with the old covenant, the Old Testament prophets. And this is important for at least two reasons. One reason is this, it's important how long it's been since the last prophet spoke to God's people. Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets prophesied around 460 BC which means that it's been about 460 years of prophetic silence from God to his people. Israel had been scattered in exile in the seventh and sixth centuries BC. And while they had been at least partially restored to the land, they no longer enjoyed national sovereignty. They found themselves under the rule of other empires, most notably Rome, which Luke refers to in introducing us to Caesar. And so when John arrives as this long awaited prophet from God, it's truly been a long time. If you do the math, that's almost twice as long as the U.S. has been in existence. God had, God had given them these promises of deliverance, of salvation, of restoration, and they were scattered politically and religiously divided and under the thumb of Rome. The world at this time for the Jews, who looked at the promises of God of these glorious things and then looked, compared that with the world around them, the world was dark. They were waiting for the light of God to come. And the other reason John's portrayal as a prophet is important is because John's prophetic ministry is itself a tangible fulfillment of prophecy. God had given this glorious promise to his people through Malachi that the Messiah would come. And he had said that he would send a prophet as a forerunner to the coming Messiah. So God's people were waiting for a light to come into the world. And they knew from Malachi that the first sign of this light would come in the form of a prophet. And in our passage, Luke gives us a little bit more about a description of this coming prophet from the words of Isaiah. Verse four, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So God's people are waiting for the promised Messiah and they are, have this promise of a coming forerunner who would be as one crying out in the wilderness. And then we read in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. After centuries of expectation, the promises of God are finally coming to pass. Here is the voice we've been waiting for coming from God in the wilderness, just as God had promised. And so that's 
how the good news of the gospel began to arrive. And where it arrives is likewise significant. The fact that John the Baptist is in the wilderness and that people are going out to him in the wilderness to encounter God through John's ministry is significant. Not only is it in line with Isaiah's words that the forerunner would be as one crying in the wilderness, but this is also right in line with the biblical theme that renewal often begins in the wilderness. In the story of the Exodus, when God delivered his people from under Pharaoh's hand in the land of Egypt, rather than bringing them straight to a new city and straight into a fertile land where they could farm and grow crops, God instead brought them into the wilderness right away. He brought them into the desert. And we see very quickly why he did this. The problems that God's people faced were far deeper than the problem of being under Pharaoh's hand in slavery. As we see them grumbling at the Lord, they even ask God to bring them back to Egypt so they can have more food. Without the wilderness experience, God's people wouldn't have slowed down to notice that there was a problem with their hearts. Later on, listen to what God says to his people in Ezekiel chapter 20. God says, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So you hear that. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I'm going to bring you into the wilderness. I'm gonna enter into judgment with you. I'm going to bring you to the same place as your fathers. And through this judgment, I'm gonna bring you into the covenant. Just one more example. This is Hosea, another prophet in chapter two. Therefore, behold, God says, I will allure her, speaking of Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This theme of renewal beginning in the wilderness is throughout the scriptures. And the word of the Lord comes to John and does just what these prophets wrote about. John's ministry is clearly connected to this theme of renewal in the wilderness. His invitation to Israel is to join him in the wilderness to hear the word of God. Two years ago, my wife and I had a small team of folks around us and we were working to plant a new Sojourn church in the Southwest corner of Interloop Houston. Sojourn Brazewood, uh, when COVID shut things down. And when it became clear that the shutdown across our city was going to last for a very long time, I got a call from the pastors here at Sojourn Heights who offered for me to come up and, and step in as a pastor back at Sojourn Heights. And we wound up shutting down our church planting endeavor and making plans to move back to the Heights. Thankfully, um, as we made this big decision, I was given a couple of months between that decision, which happened in about mid-April, uh, and my start date at Sojourn Heights, which was July 1st of last year. Um, I was given a couple of months to shut down things as well as possible with Sojourn Brazewood and also to breathe and to heal and to process just this huge change that had happened. But of course, um, I thought I've got a lot of time on my hands and not much time, not, not, not much to do with it. And so I called and I offered to start doing a few things for Sojourn Heights even before my start date. And so I started doing things and I found myself working most days to do various things. 
And then I was talking with my counselor and he said, Paul, did you, because I like let it slip that I was doing things for Sojourn Heights. And my counselor said, did you just say that you're actually, st- you started to work already? I said, yes, Jeremy. Um, he said, Paul, if I were you, I'd stop immediately um, and get away. Um, he said to get away, just, just a one day retreat is fine. Just go somewhere, bring nothing electronic with you, as long as your wife knows where you are and just get away. And so I did. I stopped and the pastor said, yeah, we think it's a good idea for you not to do anything till July 1. It was my fault. And uh, I left at lunchtime one day, got home at dinner time the next day. And for lack of a better way to put it, on that brief retreat, God met me in a special way. God shared with me some things that I wouldn't have been able to hear from him otherwise. Talked about who I am. I talked to him about things that I'm focused on, things that I'm worried about. He pointed me to various places in his word that I hadn't seen for a long time. Through his spirit, he applied truths from his word into my heart in ways that hadn't been applied that way and that wouldn't have been applied really any other way. On that retreat, while processing with God the disappointment of the end of that chapter of my life that I didn't see ending so quickly, I learned a way of talking to and hearing from God that I had never experienced before. And here's the thing, that experience didn't fix me. There was a change to be sure, but I wasn't fixed. Instead, God used it to open me up, to prepare me for work that he was going to do over the coming months and years. And in some ways, God is still working on closing me back up. Here now, almost a couple of years later. And since then, I've realized that I don't need to get away like that every time. I can pray in similar ways. I can meditate on scripture in similar ways in the car, on a walk, in the morning when I wake up, when I'm sitting on the porch. The discipline of silence and solitude sometimes takes a retreat to experience, especially if you are anything like me. But it also sometimes just takes a few intentional deep breaths. Advent is a season in which we are invited to slow down and to stop, really. We say slow down, I think, too much. Advent is an invitation to stop. When I consider the word of the Lord coming to John the Baptist in the wilderness, along with the fact that Jesus' own ministry begins in the wilderness, as we read, if you look at Luke chapter 4, I have to pause and notice that throughout the Bible and in my own life experience, there is something that the wilderness offers us that we can't get anywhere else. There's a sense that the wilderness is not just a geographical designation of some place where things happened in stories in the Bible, but throughout the Bible, as the theme arises again and again, including here at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wilderness becomes a metaphor for something absolutely critical. It becomes a metaphor for an in-between moment, a getting away for a particular purpose, sometimes by choice, and sometimes by force of circumstance, like it was with me. So that when you come back, you come back with a different view. You see, the gospel is the single most glorious and wonderful truth in the history of the cosmos. Through all time, in all places, you will never hear a better story. You will never find a better source of joy, of security, and of peace. You will never find a better display of love and mercy and beauty and excellence, no matter how long or far or hard you look. 
you will never find a better display of love than God sending his son into the world to die for our sins so that we can be forgiven and restored to right relationship with our father in heaven. It's bigger than this world. It is otherworldly in its scope and its application. But the truth is we so often miss it. There is nothing like the gospel. And because there is nothing like the gospel, all kinds of other things have become more customary for us and we aren't prepared to engage with it when we hear it. As creatures of habit, we resist things that are different from what we're used to, often without even realizing it. As self-reliant beings by nature, we resist anything that is outside of our control. And so while we may hear the great love story that the gospel is and think, man, that sounds great, we will often hear it and then move right on back to the next thing, demanding our attention, thus missing the point that the gospel was given to us to be the foundation and the cornerstone of our very lives. Unless we prepare for it, unless we're able to look Jesus full in the face for who he is when he presents himself to us and bring all of ourselves to him for him to judge and lead and guide and save, unless we seek earnestly with every fiber of our beings after the kingdom, we will miss it. Sometimes the interruption that we need is to be brought into the wilderness where there's nothing to distract, nothing else to turn to, so that the facade that we are so used to putting forward that inhibits our own self-awareness, that keeps others and even God out so that that facade can be stripped away and we can see ourselves for who we really are see our needs for what they really are, nothing short of needing renewal through the salvation offered to us in the gospel. You see, the wilderness isn't the destination. God doesn't draw his people into the wilderness for wilderness's sake. He draws people into the wilderness for another purpose, which brings us to point two, how does renewal start? What happens in the wilderness? The wilderness is a place of preparation after we read in verse two that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, we read in verse three that he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism, or excuse me, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. It could be easy to slide off into a misunderstanding of the wilderness as thinking, you know what, I need to go out and live there. Some people may be called to live in wilderness places, don't get me wrong. But this invitation to the wilderness isn't to come and live, it is to come for a particular purpose. John calls the people out into the wilderness and then later on when they ask him what he should do, he doesn't tell them, you know what, you need to quit your jobs and come set up a tent next to mine. He says, you need to go back to your job and see it differently. John's ministry is a ministry of preparation. God's people have been waiting centuries for the Messiah to come and fulfill the glorious promises of God. And so God sends his son into the world to bring light to the darkness, to usher in the renewal of all things. But as Dodds preached on for us last week, the renewal that Jesus came to bring is not exactly what they thought it would be. Rather than coming to defeat Caesar in the territory of the land, Jesus came to defeat the real enemy, Satan, in the territory of their hearts. Rather than coming to deal with the problem of being subject to Roman rule, Jesus came to deal with the problems of sin and death. 
And similar to how you would, of course, no doubt go to, a, go to great lengths to prepare for a land war, it's critical, as we see modeled in John's ministry, it's critical to prepare for the war that Jesus is preparing to wage against sin in our lives. And what does that preparation look like? Verse three, he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Renewal is a process that must begin with the preparatory work of repentance. Salvation, the salvation that verse six says is coming to the whole world is first and foremost about the forgiveness of sins. At the heart of the Christian message, is the teaching that all of the darkness that is in the world, all that is wrong with the world is a result of sin. And sin didn't just arrive in the world as though it is something out there that came in and that we need to get rid of. Sin is the result of human beings rather than trusting and obeying the God who created us and gave us stewardship of all things. Sin came from human beings choosing instead to disobey God and go our own way. As a result, to deal with the darkness in the world God needs to deal with the darkness of sin and its effects in our own hearts. And we need to do some work on this in the 21st century. We often like to refer to God somewhat selectively as a God of love, a God who welcomes us, a God who desires us to be filled with joy. And these of course are things that are very true of God. But it's also true that approaching a holy God as a sinner is a big problem. In ancient Israel, this was made quite clear. There was a physical reminder every time they worshiped God of this truth. The temple emphasized this. God's presence in the temple in ancient Israel was found in the Holy of Holies, which was behind a series of walls and doors and the holiness and cleanliness laws, the, the, the laws governing the activities of the priests all demonstrated physically the importance of keeping sinners at a safe distance from a holy God. If Luke were writing his gospel today, without the temple as this visible demonstration of this reality, I think he probably would have included a lot more about what this means. We are sinners in need of forgiveness if we are to have any hope of drawing close to God and not being consumed by the fire of his judgment. You see, we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. We are not primarily distracted or mistaken. In fact, we are very focused and actually quite clear on our priorities, oftentimes. Show me your bank account and I'll show you your priorities. Show me your calendar and I'll show you your priorities, your 10-year plan for your life. The truth is that due to the effects of sin, we are each hardwired to set our priorities in rebellion against God. And we are in need of an ongoing renewal, which at the heart must come first in the form of dealing with sin in our lives. We must be forgiven and cleansed of our sins. And since forgiveness is unthinkable without repentance, John preached a message of repentance. He summoned the people to be baptized as an expression of repentance in preparation for the one who was coming to bring renewal. How does renewal begin? It must begin with true and earnest repentance. Listen to how John warns those coming out to him to be baptized beginning in verse seven. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So as John looks around at the crowds who are coming out to him in the wilderness to be baptized, he sees that as with any spectacle, there's this risk of falling prey to something of a mob mentality. Something exciting is happening. Everyone's doing it. We need to be saved. John is baptizing, so we need to go get baptized by John so that we too can be saved. The problem is that many are simply coming to be baptized without engaging in the requisite repentance. So John calls them a brood of vipers, which does at least two things. It links them to, uh, excuse me, this reference calling them a brood of vipers, it, it links a lack of true repentance back to Satan the first serpent, and it also calls to mind the poison of snake venom. That is, the presence of these insincere baptizees, rather than being a signpost for those around them toward prudent self-examination and preparation for the coming of Jesus, they're instead doing damage. They're poisoning the fellowship in the wilderness, not just to themselves, but to those around them. And so John says, instead, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In this sense, he's rebuking both those who don't have any interest in repenting, but also he's warning those who are unaware that they're insincere potential converts. The whole point here is that John wanted people to be baptized, just only if they were repentant. Don't think, John says, that salvation can be acquired merely by means of the rite of baptism or by means of having a privileged relationship with somebody like Abraham. Instead, all must repent. No matter who your mom and dad are, no matter what line you come from, no matter where in the world you come from, all must repent. Repentance is the thing without which salvation is impossible. And I've said this before, if you've ever engaged in a problem-solving process of any kind, whether at work or at your home or just in your own life, you'll know that the first and probably most important step in any problem-solving process is careful definition of the problem. Picture seeing moisture on drywall on the ceiling and saying, you know what, I'm just gonna replace that drywall. Then it happens again. A few days later, you replace the drywall again. Not carefully defining the problem is a recipe for expending a lot of resources to no avail. For many of the Israelites, the problem in their minds, the thing that they needed to be saved from was the Romans. John the Baptist looks at them and says, no. That is a problem. To be sure, the Romans, Roman rule over Jews, not in line with God's promises. So that is a problem. But the deeper problem, the real problem that you're facing, before we can get to the drywall, is the leak in the roof. The real problem that you're facing is your own sin and your need for forgiveness. If I removed Rome from over you, you would go find another nation to be subject to. Just another sheet of drywall. So what is it for you? What is the thing that's right here for you as the problem that you're facing? Is it a corrupt government that you need to see replaced? Is it a level of busyness in your life that you need to get out of? Is it a church struggling to get healthy that just needs to get it together? Is it a particularly difficult person in your life who just needs to get with the picture or a particular situation that you're facing that you just need to get out of? Or 
is it actually a problem of pride in thinking that your way of seeing things is the right way of seeing things? Is it actually a problem of idolatry in running yourself ragged so that others will like you or so that you have more money or so that you get the next accolade? Is it actually a problem of despair, a loss of hope and patience and trust that God is at work in a situation or in a person bringing things along in his timing? You see, the first step in preparing for renewal is repentance. And all too often we neglect to do the work of digging to the heart of an issue. We are content to say, yes, yes, I need salvation. I'm sorry for my sin. I really need Jesus. And then we go back to whatever it was that we were doing before. The problem is that if this remains in general terms, that either leads to despair because things aren't gonna change or takes the form of trying to fix things up yourselves or usually a bit of both, excuse me, a bit of both. Instead, true repentance must come from a real sense of self-awareness. Isaiah's list there in verse five gets us started. Considering the mountains, am I proud? Considering the valleys, am I despairing? Considering the crooked ways, am I embroiled in a pattern of sin? Considering the rough places, am I in need of correction and exhortation? Repenting of general patterns or proclivities, while that can be helpful, rarely leads to true change or true freedom in the gospel. Learning how to truly repent often means learning how to confess sins and needs to God and others specifically. Rather than saying, you know what, I just can't do it, I need Jesus. It's instead, this is where I need you, Jesus. This is what I did and I need your forgiveness. This is where and how I need you to provide, to move, to strengthen, to heal. This, brother, sister, is how I need you to pray for me that God would do these things for me. The thing is, this kind of repentance for Luke and for John is not something that we can do on our own. This kind of self-awareness is not something that we can see on our own. It is truly a gift of God. It comes by drawing near to God and asking him to test our hearts. Like David did in Psalm 51, search me and know me, oh God, reveal to me any way that I'm living outside of your will. It comes, this kind of repentance comes from looking to the one, to the only one through whom renewal will come. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, Continuing on, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As John is leading these crowds along the road of repentance, They were a people who were in expectation. They didn't hear John's words as an invitation to fix themselves up. They were expected that God would come to bring them into salvation. And when they ask him, are you the Christ? John's response is truly amazing. He says, he who is mightier than I is coming. Think about the temptation that John would have faced to look around and say, I am the guy. He said, no. 
You see, one thing that the wilderness can do for us uniquely is the wilderness can bring us to the end of ourselves. The wilderness is a place of fasting, of removing the creature comforts that you are accustomed to having, be they food or water, be they a roof over your head, be they people around you to give you the things that you think you need. This is a question when they ask him, are you the Christ? This is a question of people who have been brought to the end of themselves. Are you the Christ? We are here in the wilderness. We have been stripped of everything else that we might cling to and we are in need of help. Are you the one we've been waiting for, John? And John's response is one of deep humility. This greatest prophet of all of the Old Testament prophets, according to which Jesus will tell us later, looks at them and says, I'm in the same boat as you. I too am waiting, waiting for the one who is mightier than I. We are but servants. We are unworthy even to untie his sandals, which is a menial task reserved for even, not even the Jewish slaves who are required to do this. The one who is to come, the one who will gather God's people, who will secure their salvation is almost here, John says. So repent, prepare for his arrival. There's an urgency to this judgment language of John here, Jesus is coming to judge. And so John uses this urgency, this picture of the, the unquenchable fire to communicate with his hearers, there is no time like the present to prepare for the one who is to come, to prepare by repenting with an eye to the forgiveness that this one who is coming is coming to give to all who repent. And so this Advent season sojourn, consider the invitation to prepare for Jesus coming. Go to the wilderness. Wilderness could be a metaphor for nearly anything. You could sometimes choose it for yourself. Like Jesus went to a desolate place. You can go on a personal retreat. You could wake up an hour earlier than those around you just to be alone with God. You could take some intentional moments to breathe and walk with no devices in the middle of your day. Go to the wilderness. Sometimes it's something that you choose. Sometimes it's something that you haven't chosen. Like the ancient Israelites brought out of Egypt, they were thrust into the wilderness. This could be a job loss. Could be a life-threatening illness. Could be a crisis in your life where you need to step back and take some deep breaths, where you have no other recourse but to step back and ask God for help. Make space go to the wilderness, make space to ask God, using the images given us by Isaiah here to give us self-awareness. Am I living a bit like a mountain that needs to be brought low? Am I living a bit like a valley that needs to be lifted up? Am I living a bit like a crooked way that needs to be straightened? Am I living like a rough place that needs to be smoothed? ask God to reveal those things and then ask for him to deal with them. Advent is about light coming into the darkness. It's not about darkness making itself light. Advent is about light coming into the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it, but the light overcoming the darkness. More practically, it's not about us taking a moment of pause out of the rat race of our lives to think about what we want to change and then getting to work to change it ourselves. It's about bringing ourselves to God, knowing that our best efforts to fix things, whether that be in here, whether they be out there, will never be enough. We need a savior. We need a savior to secure forgiveness from our sins. We need a savior to apply the work of righteousness in our lives. We need a savior to bring justice and peace to the world around us. 
And this is a risky thing to invite the Lord to do. Asking God to test your heart. Asking God to reveal what is dark within you. God doesn't come to a mountain and then perch for a few million years to wait for it to erode. He makes it low. It reminds me of Psalm 23, the, the great shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. This isn't a shepherd walking up to a sheep and just talking to it and waiting for it to lay down. It's a shepherd wrapping his arms around the sheep and breaking it, not actually breaking the bones, but the, the term is breaking the sheep's legs, like going out and, what's the phrase? Uh, anyway. You, I see a couple nods. That's not, a, it, we'll, we'll leave that for later. The shepherd coming down and making the sheep lie down. It's a forceful image. This is what God does to this mountain. This is what God is going to do to that valley. God lifts the valley, the one in despair. He makes the mountain or hill low, humbling the proud. He straightens the crooked and the sinner, bringing them to judgment, which by God's grace will lead us to repentance. And he smooths the rough places, sharpening iron and smoothing the rough edges of our souls, our personalities. He is the one who saves. He is the one who renews. And any wound that he opens up in order to do surgery in our hearts, he will close up and heal and make us stronger than before. And listen, there isn't room for both the way of the world and the way of Jesus. I'll close with this. There's not room for the way of the world and the way of Jesus. It's, it's either one or the other. If John teaches us anything, it's that you won't find the answers to these questions of which of these Isianic pictures are you. You won't find those answers in the context of your daily life. You need to be brought into the wilderness and bring yourself fully before God to ask him to examine you. You won't find the answers until you are brought to the wilderness, until you lift up your head from what is captivating you. You might need to be called a brood of vipers, or you might need to be told to relax, to stop trying to earn God's favor. I don't know what you need to hear, but nor do you until you pause and ask God for it until you process it aloud with people in your community, which is filled with the spirit in order to lead us towards fullness of health as brothers and sisters in the family of God. So this Advent season, go into the wilderness. Don't avoid it. Find the quiet place where you can prepare him room. Find there your need for transformation, for repentance, for renewal, and prepare yourself for the coming of the one who is mightier than you who is strong to save and who is delighted to hear you repent. Let me pray. And as we pray, do me a favor and sit a little bit straighter up, if you would. Keep your eyes closed, if you would. And hold out your hands, palm up, just on your knees in a posture of receiving. Heavenly Father, we come before you. asking for your presence, for your guidance, for your wisdom, and for your leading. God, we know there's nothing magical about this posture, but we know that being in a posture of intentional receiving, we are coming before you and we want to receive from you. 
We want you to speak to us, to guide us, to minister to us, to reveal to us ways in which we need to be corrected, things that we need to repent of. And we need your help not to take those things and get off to the races to try to fix them ourselves. We need you to come in and heal us. We need you to reveal what is dark and then shine light brightly into those things. We ask this for ourselves. We ask this for our families. We ask this for our parishes. We ask this for our church. We ask this for our whole world, that you, God of light, would shine light into our darkness today, a little brighter than you did yesterday. Tomorrow, a little brighter than we did today. And give us the patience and trust and hope to know that over the course of this process, over the duration of this journey, you will speak to us, you will minister to us, you will meet us, you will lead us, you will guide us, and you will ultimately complete the work that you came and started. We love you, we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.